You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review. And it is the end of the week. Thank God. January 25th. It's Friday. Foreign Policy Friday, which has morphed into National Security Friday for good reason. We're going to have not our typical guest on the show, Jordan Schachtel. We'll have him on next week. We're going to have Jason Jones back by popular demand. Uh, Just first wanted to go through some housekeeping from yesterday's show. Got a lot of strong feedback from it where we actually put out a blueprint memo style based on our show, what the administration should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing. So there's just a couple updates on that front that show both sides of the equation. The problem of doing nothing and just kind of continuing along the same path, allowing Jared Kushner to negotiate amnesty, it's going to end either in a total capitulation or worse. We get actually worse. We, we go backwards. We get amnesty and nothing in return. Or the efficacy of actually trying to open up a new front of Trump threatening executive action. On the good front, there's actually two pieces of news. There were three things we said he needs to do. Threaten to get rid of DACA, threaten to shut off all asylum, and threaten to uh, use DOD funding where there's a couple of statutes that give him that authority. So I have an article out today we're going to put in show notes detailing a new Congressional Research Service article, CRS. That is the research arm of Congress. It's a legislative branch of of government saying that the executive branch, the president, does have such authority if used under the right circumstances, deploying military or countering drugs, which certainly this is all about that. Um, So look for that article today. Also, as far as asylum, I did not get a chance to fully explore this yet, but late last night, you know, I don't know if they're listening to us or they're planning on doing this anyway, but they they did announce that at least that there's some confusion here, but at least at San Cedro, a, a point of entry in San Diego, but I think it's also between the points of entry in San Diego, they are now going to return all the bogus asylees coming here saying they have a credible fear and making them wait in Mexico pending the outcome of proceedings, which could take a year or two. Uh, The whole problem with this is that we have stolen sovereignty. They just break into our country, assert, catch and release, and they just get released into our country, commit all sorts of crimes. The ones that engage in criminality and even the ones that don't are very poor, create social problems, fiscal problems in our schools, everything. This is the entire problem. Look, if you want to apply and wait for... Um, an outcome not on our soil where Americans are not on the hook, that's a different story. This is already along the lines of what I've been calling for. Now, again, it's there's some confusion as to why they only seem to be doing this in San Diego. Um, I do have a feeling it might have something to do with the fact that this is where Mexico possibly have, has agreed to house them, but maybe there is no agreement to do it along the border elsewhere. 
Uh, so I'm going to update you on that next week. I'm speaking with some experts on this, uh, trying to get a hold of people in government, which is um, very hard. As I'm talking to you, I'm actually, I, I, it's funny. As I'm recording this live, I actually did get a comment back from someone at DHS. And it seems like what they're doing at San Cedro is to refine the process and it's a methodical approach. We have plans to expand to the entire southwest border. Uh, wow. Okay, that is that is a game changer. Um, <laughs> I'm just actually going to respond as I'm at it. You know, God, God bless her. I'm not going to say who it is, but you know, they're they're usually terrible at getting back to me. You'd think an ally like me. There's few people that are as prolific in support of their actions as I am. Um, and you know, it's long been a, a complaint of mine that they haven't gotten back to me, but she got back to me right away. You know, before I recorded, sat and, uh, typed out this email. Um, and, uh, there we go. Wow. That's good news. So anyway, the bad news is that Jared Kushner is continuing his utter nonsense. Washington post reports that, Kushner noted, suggested that Trump would, quote, be willing to take the heat from conservatives on a broader deal similar to the one Democrats have offered last year. This is a broader amnesty, not just the 700,000 who received Obama's amnesty. And now here's an important line here. Kushner, this is from the Washington Post article, Kushner responded that, quote, permanency, meaning a permanent amnesty, would receive full consideration, said Daniel Garza, the executive director of the Libre Initiative, a group funded by Charles and David Koch, prominent GOP rhino fundraisers. Okay, I added the word rhino, who support the dreamers. Um, Let me just tell you guys, I have heard from my own sources, including members of Congress, that actually the Koch groups are fully involved in pushing this amnesty. What did I warn you guys? You guys were at the front seat of this last year, really at the end of the year. This growing relationship where Jared Kushner works with the Koch groups. Some of them are in the White House, like Brooke Rollins, the former head of Texas Public Policy Foundation, a big Koch project. They promoted jailbreak. They got Trump to go back 180 degrees on his promise to give the freaking death penalty to drug traffickers. Instead, actually successfully signed into law a new bill, cutting off a third of their sentencing on the back end, more on the front end, all sorts of leniencies. I noted at the time, even if you don't care about that issue, which you should, I said, let me tell you, this is just the beginning of the ball. They're going to take that modus operandi down the road, and they're going to do that with amnesty. And don't think that Trump can't be bought off, especially if they give him a few billion in, in so-called border funding. So this is something we really do have to watch out. And, and by the way, isn't it ironic that this ha- occurred on the same day where the media reported the Kochs announced they're not supporting Trump in 2020? Doesn't this man understand his enemies? I mean, I know he hates the Kochs. Why does he allow Kushner to serve as a conduit to bring him in? But like I said on... On uh, Thursday, I'm the only one willing to call out Kushner because everyone else is too scared to lose their access. Watch for that coming. But again, I do have to praise the administration. This asylum policy, it looks like they get what we are calling for, and I'm very happy about it. I don't want to keep our guests waiting for too long. Obviously, Jason Jones, I've been talking about him every day since we had him on two weeks ago. 
Uh, we promised a part two. He served for 24 years in Texas Department of Public Safety's Intel and Counterterrorism Division. He commanded Texas Rangers task forces dealing with counter smuggling, counter drugs, dealing with the cartels. I have not met a person in the federal government this knowledgeable about the cartels and the threat. And that's why I figured we'd bring him on again to discuss part two. All right, Jason, how are we going to get this in in just one hour? <laughs> Man, I don't know, but we'll, we'll make it work. It's good to be with you again. No, thanks. Thanks so much. Let's see where to start. You know, obviously, we talked a lot about the cartels um, and how they bring You know, what, what the threat in our communities, uh, the violence in our communities. We're seeing them direct a lot of this. I want to start from the beginning and trace back um, some an interesting hypothesis I have. I, I think you've read the article I put it out this week. That you know, it's something like I forget my title. That basically. Uh, Mexicans are paying for our Central American, our magnets to Central Americans with their blood. I noticed that there was a massive spike in murder in Mexico last decade. Uh, that was with the war of um, Calderon's administration on the drug cartels, and there was a lot of bloodshed. But then, you know, when it ended, it started going down 2012, 2013, 2014. Suddenly, in 2014, it started to skyrocket. It went from 16,000 murders to now over 33,000, according to their interior ministry. Just put out a report earlier this week. Record murders taking place. Isn't that in part related to what else happened starting 2014, the Central American migration? Could you trace some of the effects of the Central American migration through Mexico what's that, and what that's doing to empower the cartels. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, you know, if you look back, just to kind of go back from that just a little bit, if you go back to 2006 when the military of the Mexican government, as you kind of alluded to earlier uh, under Calderon, they began pushing their military throughout Mexico and actually utilizing them for the first time to fight the Mexican cartels. Uh, there was absolutely, this was the right decision. They were being overrun uh, in regards to the type of equipment that the cartels were using against their local law enforcement. And they were losing stability and security throughout the plazas uh, along the northern border of Mexico, our, our southern border. And that's where you saw really the first dynamic shift of this new capability of tradecraft that came in really from the Zeta cartel, which provided discipline and logistics and capabilities that, that really the cartels never had before. And then we started to see the integration of military-grade weapons coming in from Guatemala. And you'll remember a lot of the discussion back in the late part of 2006, 2007 about this. Uh, weapons going south from the United States into Mexico. Uh, but really what we were concerned about was the military-grade weapons we saw moving north from Guatemala. And those kind of weapons that I'm talking about are the uh, rocket-propelled grenades. You're talking about 40-millimeter mic mic rounds. Those are the, the grenades that you can shoot from the bottom of a rifle. We started seeing light anti-tank weapons. Along with that, 50 caliber, uh, outdated, while old, still very effective Browning Vietnam-era belt-fed machine guns, and then training that came with that. 
And then from that, other cartels realizing they could not take on the Zet, this began evolving as well, realizing they've got to meet that threat. And so really what we began to see at that point was discipline and tradecraft start to come into the cartels in a way we had never seen before. So when you talk about what is driving the violence up, as you mentioned earlier, this is where it's coming from. And along those plazas, which historically were just really the ones that were being battled over along the northern border. Now what we see is that all the plazas throughout Mexico, specifically Cancun, Acapulco, Cabo San Lucas, are also now seeing the same levels of violence uh, the northern border of Mexico is seeing. You, you know, that that's interesting because, um, you know, a while back I heard Acapulco was gone, that famous resort that Americans and Westerners always went to vacation, like, you can't go there anymore. But then recently, last couple of years, I heard, you can't go to Cancun either, um, or you shouldn't go there, that the violence is in even the areas where the Mexican government did everything they can to protect because they want the tourism uh, business to take off there. Obviously, they don't want to lose the revenue. That pretty much is all happening. And so you're saying that's because the biggest asset to them is the plazas where they could tax all the Central Americans or anyone coming through. So when you know, basically you had from 08 to 2013, the slowdown of all migration because of the recession here. Um, around then is when the Central American migration started. So that's when they were competing, so to speak, for that business. Well, what I would tell you is it's really a complex issue. There's a whole lot more to that. But what we, when we saw the, the branching out of the plazas in battle, you know, traditionally Mexico City, uh, Cancun, Cabo San Lucas, these play areas of Mexico, they're just, you know, they're beautiful areas. When they became in battle, there was multiple reasons for it. But one of the big ones was the, the lack of migration that started coming into Mexico, which caused the cartels internally to, to fight one another. And they had to make up for the loss of revenue from people coming in. So that's when they, that's what was the initial springboard into the plazas where they initially had not had violence. Now that's not the case. You know, now we've got all the people coming and they're taking advantage of everyone now. So with every year, this is a very dynamic situation down there and it evolves uh, every year. So, so can you trace the geography a little bit? What is happening here? You know, when people see, I mean, you have the Yuma Border Patrol sector putting out on social media now these videos of hundreds of these um, family units and all sorts of people uh, just coming over the fence, uh, coming everywhere. Can you trace the migration a little bit, starting from Guatemala, and just explain how the cartels take advantage of that and how they utilize that up the chain? Yeah, sure. Exactly. I'll, a matter of fact, I'll just walk you through exactly kind of how it works. So let's say when you cross from Guatemala uh, into Mexico, well, you're going to pay a guide and a guide's going to, you're going to have to pay usually between five and $600 for that guide to get you into, into Mexico and then get you so far into the country. Now it's very wide ranging how far based on how much money you can pay and how far you want to go. But most of the people that we talk about don't really have a lot of money. So they're going to have to pay a guy to first get them across. Then they got to pay the boatman that a lot of people have seen the inner tubes, you know, that take you from Guatemala into Mexico. That runs you about $1.50. Then you got to pay for lodging at night. That runs you around, I don't know, $11.50 to $12, if you will. But you also have to pay the Central American gangs like MS-13, who is waiting for you down there. And you got to pay them around $100 before you can get on the beast. A lot of your listeners are probably familiar with the train 
seen, you know, that you've seen the horrible images with thousands of people <laughs> on these trains uh, coming north. That train goes to several different locations. It goes to California it, or to the southern right near the, the border of California. It goes right near the border of Arizona and it goes to our southern border in Texas, uh, right up near Reynosa. And then it runs along down towards uh, Matamoros. So you've got to pay to get on that. But you've also got to pay. Mexican law enforcement and immigration, that's usually between $200 and $500, depending upon, you know, who you're dealing with. Doesn't stop there. These people are then extorted a little more. They've got to pay the cartels at each plaza they go to. And so what's so sad about this, and I could keep going on, but just um, what your listeners are never told is how these folks are extorted all the way through. And you may have seen recently, too, the images of what I call the underground Uber, where you saw those folks from the last caravan jumping on the back of 18 wheelers and moving north. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, That's a part of that underground Uber and a part of the whole system that has just become the norm in Mexico to get people through Mexico and into the United States. So as they're going up, I'm I'm just thinking on my own, you know, these are awfully impoverished people. It's they're from impoverished countries and it's not going to be the few wealthy people in there that are coming here because we all know this is not about persecution where if you're wealthy, you might be persecuted. It's, it's about economic reasons and it's about family reunification. Those are two factors that secretary Nielsen always talks about so where would they get five, seven thousand dollars, whatever it takes to do this, um, in order to pay pay their way? And when you say pay their way, just just to be clear, it doesn't mean like it's one cartel. You have to go throughout Mexico, so it's whoever controls that junction point, right? That's right. That's exactly right. And sometimes, I mean, that, that's a great question because a lot of times they don't have the money to make it all the way. And this is the part that the national media really, really misses. And it just, it drives me crazy because the women are horribly and brutally raped. They're brought into the culture of the cartels if they don't have the money. Um, when the Zetas were uh, in strength, I can tell you times where they would have kill houses and be killing these people in, in mass numbers of you know 10 and 20 in a night and then taking their bodies and hanging them up and putting uh, mantras and signs on them uh, to a rival cartel that if you know you come into our area, this is what's going to happen to you. So there are a lot of bad things happening to people who are just trying to get to the United States to better their lives that are not discussed that, you know, the United States government is not the bad guy here. Um, What is happening to these people in Mexico and how the cartel is brutalizing them is a real story that needs to come out. Um, It is the concern for me when we start talking about what is happening in Mexico is a crisis and whether it is or isn't a crisis. And is it a national security concern? And Dan, what I would tell you is it absolutely is a national security concern. When we are seeing these cartels evolve in quantum leaps in capability, and let me just give you a a real quick example of what I'm talking about. Never mind the military grade weapons that they're using. Look at the tactics, you know, to cross into the U S You don't just walk across the border. That's not how it works. I mean, that happens, but it is extremely rare. What happens is they have what are known as halcones or falcons, and there are literally thousands of them. In the the Rio Grande Valley sector, I can, without any question, I can tell you there are thousands, both on the U.S. side and in Mexico, 
And they control what we call gates. And those are every bend in the river we consider a gate. And so so does the cartel. That's where I'm getting that from. And these halcones utilize, and this is as far as I can really talk about where they are in their technology, but they utilize handheld radios that are digital in nature and encrypted. Now, there's new technology they're using I won't go into. This is much older technology I'm able to talk about. But they use that to be able to move product and whatever that is, whether it's people or drugs, into and out of the United States. And they control territory. This is how, you know, I I suspect folks wonder, my gosh, how does Border Patrol apprehend 63,000 people in the U.S.? I mean, how are they getting here? Well, it's because these are controlled operations that the cartel are doing. And there's not a best day. There's not a best time. The cartel literally runs the border 365 days a year, rain or shine. And when they notice that there is a gap in a gate where Border Patrol is not around, they will move that product into the United States, trying to get it to a stash house as fast as possible. That's the way it works down along the border. Wait a minute. There was something very disturbing you said there that I think needs to be revisited. Um, We have American soldiers in about 140 countries. You know, a lot of them are small teams of of Green Berets or, or other things, but we do have pretty substantial deployments in a lot of places that I think many people believe is very questionable. Yet you're telling me that we have areas on our side of the border, our territory, that is, I don't know if being controlled by the cartels is too strong, but where they at least are able to have, what you said, these hakones conduct their operations and we don't do anything about it. I mean, isn't that a military problem? If there are, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of old fashioned, but in my book, isn't that an invasion if I have criminal groups where you have guys on our, our side of the border conducting smuggling into our country? Yeah, yeah. let me, because this may be the first time your, your listeners have ever heard this, these terms. And they've got to be thinking to themselves, well, this can't be right, what he's saying. And what I would say to you is, ladies and gentlemen, in Texas alone, we average just Texas, 1,290 miles of that border. We average 6,000 apprehensions on U.S. soil every week. We average from that same same uh, same area, 1,290 miles, over 10,000 pounds of narcotics a week. And the way they're able to get these people and narcotics into the country is through using tactics and having control of that border. Now, believe me, Border Patrol does not want to tell you this. This is why they want you to pay for 5,000 more Border Patrol agents. This is why they're asking for a wall. This is the why that the national news media never tells you. Um, we, we've got some real challenges down there. And, you know, I won't go into any details as to, you know, can we, you know, break their radio encryption and things like that. But what I will tell you is that normal law enforcement at the local level does not have encrypted radios all over this country. I can tell you along the southwest border, many of those small agencies don't have encrypted radios, yet the Halcones and the Sicarios, which are assassins that we're trying to work against, are leveraging a capability that our law enforcement do not possess. What about, so you're talking about their capabilities, uh, you know, for their communications, but I was told for a long time that we had problems where they were able to monitor the communications of our 
agents. Have has that been secured more over the last number of years? Yeah, that's been fixed. The federal agencies quite some time ago went encrypted. Uh, state law enforcement's gone encrypted about a decade ago, but local law enforcement, that's what you're picking up on. That's many of them down there in these smaller agencies. They are not encrypted. Now, I won't go into whether the cartels can monitor them or not. That's something I just won't, won't talk about. But uh, I will tell you that um, you know, the, the trade craft that they're employing is from intelligence communities around the world and from military. That's where they're obtaining it. And it's the same people providing their cicadios, the training that they're receiving. And, I, I, you know, I, listen, I would ask your viewers, don't listen to what I'm saying. Go on YouTube tonight and, you know, watch some videos yourself of the cartels and their operations. It's it's the game has changed. You know, in far Texas right now, we've been having shootouts right on the port of entry that have just, I mean, these things are lasting 45 minutes to several hours. Wait, 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 wait uh, where is this? Uh, far Texas port of entry and ask your viewers to, to check that tonight and watch the videos that are being posted by the cartel and, and victims just trying to walk across the port of entry. They'll be able to see it firsthand. Uh, I mean, this stuff should be getting out to the national, to the national media and to the folks so that the, the listeners and the American people can see what's happening down along our border. It's just, it's terrible. Be, be, because that's what bothers me that, you know, I just have an article out today talking about the pe- president's emergency powers, some non-emergency powers, and they just don't want to discuss this in in the prism of a national security, national defense issue that somehow it could be an emergency. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking where as early as the 90s, Joe Biden called for military action against the cartels. Um, you know, in the 90s, we passed a statute authorizing DOD fund funding to construct roads and fences to counteract smuggling corridors. And I'm thinking now, you know, you're telling me they've taken a quantum leap since then. So the severity of the threat in terms of their tactics, their weapons, um, their organization is much larger. We see the, the human, humanitarian nature is much worse because, you know, we've had years before of major, um, migration in larger numbers, but you know, they would try to come in uninterdicted. Whereas now you're seeing hundreds at a time just surrender themselves and tie up the border agents. So I think that's something that is is kind of new. Um what what do you think is the most powerful element of this that needs to get out in the congressional debate when making the case for the urgency and even using potential emergency powers of the president. Yeah, the, the biggest point of this is that, you know, the Defense Intelligence Agency about, I don't know, six years ago, really put forth an effort to create a whole new layer that provided authorities. And what they wanted to do was put the Mexican cartels and other terrorist organizations into a new realm of global violent networks. And what that would do is provide authorities to go after the cartels and leverage the Department of Defense and others. And I absolutely stood behind behind it then, and I do today. There was an initiative last year to try to name the cartels as terrorist organizations, and it was refuted by the intelligence uh, community, which I strongly, strongly disagree with. Um, we've got some real challenges along our border and throughout our country as a result of what the cartels have done and how they have absolutely transitioned into these global violent networks, as I say. And let me give you another example. 
Right now, they what I can speak to, at least publicly, is three generations of armored vehicles. The first generation came out around 08, 09. They were called the Monsters. Basically, what they would do, Dan, is they would take a uh, dump truck and they would slap big pieces of armor on it, metal, and make this thing as, as bulletproof as they could. They were big. They were heavy. And I've got to tell you, um, I used to wonder how in the world do you stop these things? And we brought in a, a source one time who was a Gulf Cartel member. And I asked him, man, how do you defeat these things? And I'll never forget it. He looked back and he said, you know, it's no problem. He said, you just run up to the door seam and you just open up a clip. And he kind of held his hands, you know, like he was firing a machine gun. And he said, eventually, those rounds skip right between the metal and hit the driver, and that's how you do it. <laughs> I, would have, I would have never thought of that, you know. But what they learned very quickly is that those things were too heavy, and they were not mobile. And that they learned from fighting the Mexican military. And this is where they get better at what they do. Yeah. They fight the military. They battle other criminal organizations, including themselves. And they learned that mobility was the key. And so then came the second generation armored vehicles where you really saw like um, Ford F-150s that, or I'm sorry, Ford uh, F-350s that were one ton. And they would put a big box on the back that was metal. Now they had a little bit more ability to them. Um, and could get around a little quicker. Well, then they realized, well, they were easily seen. So the third generation that they came up with were, were regular F-150 or even F-250 pickups. They, the mobility was there. They were a lot lighter. And you could look in and not tell that that was an armored vehicle because they would spray paint the windows on the outside. So it just looked like dark tinted windows. But really, that was an armored vehicle. Uh, I won't go into the new stuff right now, but what I will tell you is a new trend we're seeing is where they're taking armored vehicles and cloning them with military insignias uh, from Mexico that allows them to get up close to the military so that they can engage them. So you see what I'm saying about tradecraft, military tactics, and what they're using. You know, these are not things that normal law enforcement can take on. And it's imperative that our government recognize that at some point we've got to start creating the ability for the Department of Defense to be able to get into this and, and have authorities to go out and, and help Mexico be successful. Because a lot of folks, again, forget Mexico has thrown everything they've had at this since 2006. And it is getting worse, not better. Yeah, I mean, because like you said, uh, we've seen this in the Middle East many times where they're, they engage in a war with a Western power or some other power that, that harden, hardens them over the years. We certainly saw that in Afghanistan. And uh, and obviously, you have all the warfare together. It's funny, as you're talking about this, I'm actually looking at um, Breitbart's Cartel Chronicles. They posted an article last August of battles between the... Um, Cartel del Noreste, the faction of Zetas with the Gulf Cartel. You mentioned the Gulf Cartel, and they actually show pictures of these armored vehicles. It looks like they're the clunkier ones. Um, we'll put that up in our show notes. Uh, really fascinating stuff. I, I guess what bothers me is that a lot of people, it seems like in the political class, are like, yeah, Daniel, that's not, you know, and, and this is probably where DIA is coming from. Correct me if I'm wrong. Or, or, or um, not DIA, but you know the in intel uh, agencies that are trying to shoot down any effort to designate them as terrorists. And look, you know terrorists are like you know those that really want to destroy America. These guys, you know, yeah, it's drugs and migrants, which of course our government doesn't care about. 
Um, but they're they're never going to turn on us. But what I understand is if you're telling me they're growing this quickly and they have operations in 40, 50 countries, isn't it a classic example of something that's not a problem until it is? I mean, if you allow them to get powerful on our border, we're going to aren't they going to get more and more brazen over time on our side of the border? Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, we're seeing the spillover violence in the United States with beheadings that we've had, with, with murders that are going on. But the problem goes back to what we talked about originally, which is uh, the data system that the United States government is using to collect transnational and 21st century crimes. It doesn't collect them. So everything we've talked about today is not collected that's occurring in the United States. It's, it's just not. We're using an outdated collection platform known as the Uniform Crime Report and National Incident-Based Reporting System under the FBI. And we've got to have something that identifies. I mean, we've been talking about this border issue for decades, right? But yet here today, we are not capturing, you know, bailouts that are happening along our southwest border. And now even farther north, you know, I teach around the country and it's amazing to me. Uh, I don't know if your viewers are, or, or your listeners are familiar with what a bailout is, but basically that's where you take a, a stolen vehicle, you remove all the seats in it and you drive it north as far as you can um, filled with people. So sometimes you'll have a truck with 30 people lying in the back and inside of it. Um, uh, we're seeing those now as far as Oklahoma, Missouri. I've talked to law enforcement in California. They're seeing them at the northern border of California now. So these things are moving farther. None of that is captured. Splashdowns are not captured. Human smuggling, human trafficking, cyber, all the, the crimes that law enforcement domestically are dealing with are not captured. So you know, to say that spillover violence isn't occurring and that it, it's just wrong because it absolutely is. Okay, so I'd be remiss if I don't bring this up. Um, <laughs> you know, now that you, you talked about the fact that we don't quantify any of this type of stuff um, that, that the cartels do, that illegal immigrants do, that they're involved in, El Paso. So, um, you know, it, it's one of the five top five open borders talking points that El Paso is one of the safest cities in the country. Now, is it correct from my observation, two, two concurring observations I've seen about El Paso. So number one, um, the special agent in charge of DEA there, Kyle Williamson, said that our biggest threat right, right there in the region right now is from methamphetamine. A lot of it's being pushed through our border here, meaning in El Paso. And he cited the Juarez cartel, La Lineña. La Lineña. Yeah, I figured you know that. Okay, the Jalisco Nueva Generation <laughs> and the Sinaloa cartels. Um, and just putting that together with two more data points. Number one, uh, we have seen an 1,886% increase, almost 2,000% increase first two months of this fiscal year over that time, the previous fiscal year in apprehensions of illegals. It's up to over 11,000 uh, for two months in a, in a sector that was very dormant for many years. We'd only have like a couple hundred um, apprehensions. That's number one. And number two, you talked about stash houses, stash houses on our soil. Isn't there a heck of a lot of garbage that has to be going around in, our, in and around El Paso County Um that's just not being picked up? Oh, absolutely. Look, I was stationed in El Paso for two years. I know it very well. Um, so here's the, here's the background about when they say it's the safest city in the country, yet it's a border region. Um, they 
they created the really one of the first walls along the southwest border with what is known as Operation Hold the Line in 1993. Uh, I arrived there in 1998, and what that wall uh, did, they, they built two fence layers, and they had to put a Border Patrol agent uh, along that, that border where every one of them had to be able to look over their left shoulder and their right shoulder and see another agent. It dropped apprehensions by over 70%. But when I got out there in 98, what it had done is it pushed all the crime out to the smaller communities outside the city limits of El Paso. So that's where we were working that very heavily. But everything that we've been talking about today is affecting El Paso uh, tremendously, but it's not captured. So, you know, the drug problem that you mentioned, you know, all the human smuggling, money laundering, weapons trafficking, extortions, kidnapping, public corruption, none of that is captured. So, uh, you know, I just disagree with the premise that, you know, we're the safest city concept. I just I totally disagree with that. Just connected to this point, um, when you talk about stash houses, I hear that from a lot of people. Could you explain to our listeners what that means and how the cartels are able to operate, you know, these these almost bases, transport points on our on our soil and we can't disrupt them? I mean, why? Why? Why can't we disrupt them where it's just a game of whack-a-mole? Well, listen, that's, I'm really glad you asked that question. This, this is the why part of why the wall is so important and why the wall is needed. Along the border in many uh, urban areas, you have colonias or subdivisions very close to the water um, or the Rio Grande River, which, which divides us from Mexico. People can be into these stash houses in a matter of minutes. I mean, some, in some areas, they're not even 100 yards. So the challenge is not picking up and that the people have swam across the river, that a ground sensor has indicated that someone's crossed illegally, or a camera. That's not the challenge. That's not the difficulty. The difficulty is getting to them. You know, some of these areas are just extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, the bends in the river and the, the terrain are really difficult to get through. So what the wall does is it allows law enforcement the opportunity to respond. You know, you hear a lot from the other side that, you know, why build a 20-foot wall when they're just going to bring a 21-foot ladder? Well, you've got to have logistics to get over the wall, especially when you're moving contraband like narcotics. So the wall absolutely, when it comes to people, helps law enforcement tremendously. And again, going back to the tactics that the cartels are utilizing that, again, is not told to the American people. You know, these are controlled things. So let's say I'm going to move a group of 30 people across, but the boss has a, has a load of narcotics he wants moved. Well, people are the gift, as they will say when you're talking to them. They're the gift that keeps giving because they pay up front. And when you push them right to Border Patrol, then you're going to get them back and they're going to have to pay again to cross later. So what they will do is the cartel will send these people right to Border Patrol where they know they are. And then while all the, the Border Patrol agents are busy trying to chase people down and apprehend them, they're sending the boss's drug load. It's a very coordinated operation. Oh, Another you mean, way they do you it. You mean they don't only come in at the points of entry in the cars? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, funny how that works. 
<laughs> so we have some real challenges down there that, you know, but the perception is just people trying to cross over a, bo- a barrier. And that's not the case. And what I would tell your folks listening is anytime you see a diversion, such as like you saw in San Diego, what was that a week and a half, two weeks ago, where you had all these people crossing and, and you know, running from Border Patrol and throwing rocks at the agents. When I see that as someone who's who's countered their operations on the border, I know exactly what that is. That's nothing more than a diversion. And the bigger the diversion tells me the bigger the load they're trying to move a mile up or a mile down from the river. It's funny because I'm just reading this came out by our friend Brandon Darby um, in Roma, Texas. They just reported this an hour ago. A group of individuals in Mexico hurled rocks and insults at U.S. Border Patrol agents as they apprehended migrants after an illegal crossing. The incident took place on the banks of the Rio Grande, not far far from downtown Roma. The rock throwing and insults were captured in a live video feed. We're going to link to this Um uh, you know, they, they uh, capture the moment when U.S. Border Patrol boats pulled up on the banks on the north side to help a group of agents who were trying to arrest the man apparently resisting capture. The man was part of a group of at least four who had just crossed into Roma. In the background, voices can be heard yelling that the agents were being rough with the man. Uh, moments later, various individuals on the Mexican side can be seen running to the edge of the river where they scream several insults and throw rocks but fall short of their targets. Um, Miguel Aleman, geez, I can't pronounce this, yeah. is a city under the control of the Gulf Cartel and is considered one of the main smuggling carters into Texas. The area lacks any physical barriers other than the shallow waters of the Rio Grande, thus facilitating smuggling operations. Um, you know, I didn't mean to do this. You know, I'm just literally watching this on Twitter live as the show happens. And and God bless Brandon. He's a great guy, ally of ours, um, does great work with the Cartel Chronicles. Could you comment on that? I know you're familiar with that area. Is that kind of what you're talking about? It absolutely is. And Miguel Aliman, uh, what's happening right now is CDN is trying to move in. Uh, Cartel of the North is what the old Los Zetas is what that is. They're trying to move in on Gulf Cartel territory. Now, the Gulf itself is embattled uh, between the metros and the cyclones. So, you know, you've got a lot of different types of skirmishes going on there. But I will tell you, I know Miguel Aleman very well. It's a small community. It's not very big. And it'll be hard uh, for the listeners to believe. But just in that little small community, they move about five tons of narcotics into the U.S. every single month. Wow. It's incredible what's been happening. And, and this and again, all goes not back just, to, to... Just to be clear, it's not just at the point of entry. No, 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 not at all. It's at the <laughs> point of entry and be, between the points of entry. Remember, um, what's really happening is marijuana, people, and contraband move between the ports of entry. Controlled substances, which are very... You, know, you can package a kilo of cocaine in a very small brick, methamphetamine, um, you know, and heroin. Most of those move through the port of entry in um, vehicles that have uh, compartments that have been that have been built. That's why we see so much controlled substances at the ports of entry. But marijuana, which is their cash crop, all moves uh, between the ports. And you're absolutely right about what you said earlier about methamphetamine. And this is where I go back to the cartels and how good they well, are. Wait, wait, um, how, I don't mean to cut you off. Just I want to focus this this point because the media is focusing on this a lot, and I really think our listeners need to hear the truth on this. What I've heard from DEA is that what we're seeing now is the the large tonnage, the large quantities of meth that they've never seen such large quantities. That's coming in between the points of entry because they're too big to conceal in a car. Well, no, no. It, it moves on both. Make no doubt about it. It moves on both. It depends who the load is owned by. 
and how much is moved within that one. I mean, it, it gets very, it becomes very uh, complex as to why they'll move between the port, whether it's secure uh-huh. enough or not, or whether it's someone else's. But here's the background to the whole methamphetamine epidemic that's hitting us right now. And that's, you know, I'm glad you brought it up because most people are not. We're focusing on opioids, right? Because in 2012, Chapo Guzman and everyone else started moving toward that. Well, the cartels have already seen what is changing and evolving, and they've already evolved back to moving methamphetamine again. So while the nation is focusing on the opioid crisis, which they should, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm just trying to show to the effectiveness of the cartels yep. to always be one step ahead. And let me, let me give you an example of what I mean. In 2006, I was a part of the Methamphetamine Initiative Group in Houston. And at that point, remember, we had labs going on all over the country. You know, um, we had kids walking into uh, pharmacies buying massive amounts of pseudoephedrine. Well, across the country, we outlawed it, right? And what did we see immediately? We saw the cartels recognize that. They saw a gap in the market. They reached out to China, imported massive amounts of pseudoephedrine, and created the mega labs. So as we're just catching up, they're always evolving. And people always ask me, you know, Jason, if we just legalize it, you know, all drugs, will they stop? And what I want the American people to know is, no, they will not. What we are dealing with is a global problem. America is not the only consumer of the cartels anymore. We have allowed them over the decades to get too big. And governments cannot take them on alone anymore. The country of Mexico is not winning this problem. And if we truly want to be successful at this, at some point, there's going to have to be initiatives that allow the Department of Defense to come in, authorities to be there and look at them as terrorist organizations, which they are. I mean, everything I've described to you today, Dan, I mean, you've murdered almost 200,000 people since 2007. I mean, think of that. I mean, I'm throwing a big number out there, yeah. but think of the lives. Think of the number of Mexican citizens, both in our country and in Mexico, affected by that. Yeah. I mean, that's generations. And, and, and what they engage in is the definition of terrorism is to terrorize. And what you always describe to me, sometimes in pretty vivid detail, that's what they do. I mean, and 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 we're always like, look at what they do to the Iraqi people. Look at the Afghani people. Here you have it right on our border, and somehow we just – it's just not fashionable to care about it. Yeah, and let me give you another stat from CNN that came out. And, and you know, talking about a democracy and, and whether democracy truly works, I don't know that if, if, if this is getting out this far north or not, you'll have to tell me. But from September 2017 to July 1st of 2018 – 132 politicians and candidates were murdered in Mexico. Now, think of that. Think of the effects on a nation. 132 politicians and candidates. We used to see this, you know, years ago, like I say, tracking these cartels since 2006. We saw it getting steadily worse and worse. But this, by far, is a quantum leap in the killing of politicians in Mexico. I mean, those numbers are staggering. So... You you basically said this already, but I want I want to pin you down a little bit more on this because I think this this is a big debate, even maybe among some of my listeners, it's it's a big debate on the right. A lot of people are like, "Well, Daniel, you know, war on drugs never works. Yeah, you got to legalize everything." And um, one of the things I've always felt is that you know a war on an item doesn't work, and I think we all agree a war on guns doesn't work. You know, gun control doesn't work. But a real war does work, and we never went after the source of the problem. We're like a hamster on a wheel 
where at best we would make a rest down chain. At worst, we don't even do that. and We just kind of like focus on the item. But this is something that, you know, my, my friend Derek Maltz, who's the head of the DA Special Operations Division, you can actually see him now on Twitter. He's like going like a, like a nutcase on this. He's all over it. Um, we go and we, know, we have the intel on everything that goes on in Afghanistan and here and there in Somalia, and we blow things up all the time. Why wouldn't we, and I'm not saying this is part, you know, a whole approach, but just this one thing, why don't we blow up their labs? I just don't understand. I mean, I mean if, if we're saying it's killing that many people, why don't we blow up their labs? We know where they are. Well, sure, sure. And I, I think it goes back to the bigger discussion that you kind of alluded to a little while ago is that, you know, this is not, they are not drug traffickers anymore. If you notice, I'm not calling them the drug cartels. I'm calling them the Mexican cartels. And the reason is because they've evolved and that we still look at them as we did in 1980, right? We've not, we're not looking at them as to what they are today. And that's what I spend all of my time trying to do with the federal intelligence community, the federal agencies, state agencies, and local law enforcement, and now to the folks to get the word out that, look, they have changed. They are operating around the world. They are working with terrorist organizations. You know, I get asked that question a lot, too. Let me address that real quick. You know, would the cartels work with a terrorist organization? Would they this? Would they that? If, if we right now were standing in front of one of them and we were talking to them, they would laugh at that question. That's a, that's a question from a Westerner from America. That's our point of view because we believe Middle Eastern terrorist organizations to be the worst thing. If you were talking to them, they would laugh at that and say, what are you talking about? I mean, they believe themselves to be commandos. They, be, they call themselves that. And to work with a terrorist, that would be beneath them. Now, would they do it? Absolutely. It's just money. They don't care anything about us. That All they care about is making money. That's it. And so will they move people who are terrorists? Yes, they are doing that. I mean, that's there's I mean, I could give you names all day long of people who've been arrested for terrorism in the United States that crossed our border illegally. That is happening. But the cartels themselves see themselves above terrorist organizations. And, you know, I don't know. Um, but if, if you remember this or not, but in, I think it was 2014 or 2015 when Chapo had gotten arrested, you know, he, or before he had gotten arrested this last time, he himself said, look, he's not happy with what he was seeing in Syria. If they didn't stop that over there, he was going to send the Sicadios over there to handle it. I mean, this is how they view themselves. And what I'm trying to do is get us to look at them for what they are, not for what they were and start helping the people of Mexico and of our own country, because we're going to have to think a lot bigger in the 21st century to stop this problem. You know, you, you mentioned, I, I wasn't planning on getting into this, and I um, speak about this more with your former colleague, uh, Todd Benzman, but I, I once did a mini interview with Michael Braun. He was the former head of... Uh, sure, a chief special of, operations with yeah. DEA. Well, not yeah. special operations, I mean higher than that, chief, uh, chief of all operations mm-hmm. uh, at DEA. I, I yeah. guess that's, that's like the number three guy, maybe. Um, that's, that's the operational appointment. Now, I know this is subject of a lot of debate, even among friends of mine, whether there is direct relationship between Hezbollah and the IRGC um, and the Colombian-Mexican drug cartels. He believed there there was. Um, But he said that – he just just want to read this quote and get your comment. And I published this in an article – when was this? October 23rd. 
he said the coyote is interested in one thing only, collecting his money and moving his illicit customers across the border as quickly as possible. Anyone believing for a moment that foreign terrorist organizations like Hezbollah don't exploit situations like this simply don't understand how the real underworld operates. He's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, well what, what would you say if they say, well, come on, Daniel, you, you, you just uh, spoke for an hour with Jason Jones, all of his experience on how uh, how robust their operation is and how, how much money they make, given that they know in our own stupid Western mind how we only care about Middle Eastern terrorism and don't view them as a problem, why would they sully themselves by allowing these guys to come over, thereby eliciting our ire and potentially undermining their operations? That Isn't that the prevailing thought in the broken Intel world. What I just said. Yeah. I, you know, I definitely see that angle of it and I, and I understand it, but you know, let me give you another one. You know, uh, you know the U S state department says the FARC is designated as a terrorist organization. The FARC are being employed and have been as far back as I am aware since 2010, when we had the first vehicle board improvised explosive device um, set off by uh, the Juarez cartel in Juarez, Mexico. So we know the FARC's introduction into the cartels, not only in providing training, but in providing uh, tradecraft, which allowed for the detonation of that device to go off as far back as 2010. Now, if you look at where they've evolved to, uh, in 2017, we seized the first Papa bomb that was attached to a drone. So Papa bombs, a uh, small device uh, wrapped in human feces with... Uh, with shrapnel, usually nails, something along those lines, and then duct taped. Uh, I won't go into what type of explosive just for security concerns, but they can throw it and then it'll detonate. Um, we're seeing that in the Mexican cartels and not just in one, in many. And as a matter of fact, uh, some of the sources that I'm talking with now, the thing that they're really concerned about is that we're seeing a lot more uh, Colombians intermingled within the training and tradecraft of multiple cartels. So things are evolving and changing every day. But that's just another example of the mindset going back to what the government believes is a terrorist organization, yet the cartels are employing and utilizing them every day. So to, to just cap this whole discussion off, you know, we, we discussed the severity of the problem, how they have... Um really taken quantum leaps, as you said, really evolved into much more than just a drug cartel. So you, you said you believe we need to you know, treat them, designate them as terrorist organizations, open up more uh, governmental collaboration and dealing with them, DOD assets. Again, my buddy Derek Maltz, former DEA, SOD, had always has been yelping about that for years. Could you explain what that looks like? What would be the next step? So let's say we designate designate them. What do we need to do with DOD? I mean, our agents in Mexico, we need to go be more aggressive. Is it blowing things up? What does that look like? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think it looks more of like what we see overseas, where we are collaborating and working in partnership with the Mexican authorities. You know, I, I've sat down with generals from Mexico and had these discussions. They are craving and have been for a very long time intelligence about the cartels and how to go after them. And because of corruption issues, which is a huge issue, that's part of the challenge. But we've got to get over that. And we've got to allow groups like JSOC the ability to work directly side by side to conduct 24-7 operations, not this law enforcement side of the world. You know, those are two different worlds. I believe both of them need to come together in Mexico to help Mexico solve this problem, because the belief that we can arrest our way out of Mexico's problems is long gone. All you have to do is look at the last 50 years of failure and think that we can do that because we cannot. And the Mexican government needs help. I can tell you that they want help and that we need to look at the problem that they're facing differently if we truly want to have national security in our own nation. Because I fear that we're at a tipping point in Mexico where I think we could accomplish with this new president what you what you said. But isn't it true that, you know, again, they'll always go to the strongest player. And my fear is that if we don't telegraph the message that we're serious and finally going after the cartels, you know, a lot, a lot of people say, well, we have this complication because the Mexicans won't work with us. But they only won't work with us because we're not serious about it. So they're scared of the cartels. But if we, is it true if we said, this is where we're at, this is where we're going, um, you know, we're, we're the strong guys in the block. They'll gravitate to us. If we don't, then they'll gravitate to the cartels and get bought off. That is a complex issue, no doubt about it. Let me Let me try to put it like this. There are some legitimate, well, not legitimate, but there are some real issues that the Mexican government has about sovereignty and perception. Um, And I I truly understand that. You know, I I really do. But I think and I believe that if we approach this correctly, that the partnerships can be had. I know they can be had because, you know, we helped create some ourselves. And we but in order to do that, we have to take a different approach from just an arrest you know, go in and, and try to get indictments and make arrests and truly make partnerships so that we can use our military in support of their military. Now, that includes intel. That includes a whole lot of things that will follow that. But until we get there where authorities allow DOD components to really operate down there, not in a hit and miss, uh, but in a 24-7 consistent basis, we are not going to get there with what we are. And what I fear, too, and I'll tell you completely, is not where we are. Because I watch what the cartels are doing based on daily tripwires that I'm seeing. And what I'm concerned about is where they're going. So let's talk about that because that needs to be discussed. We're looking at heavy lift drones because if we think for a second they're not going to go that direction, ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you they are already headed that direction because they're perceiving the wall is coming. If we don't look at also, um, uh, or excuse me, they're also looking at going into uh, digging deeper tunnels to try to get around our wall. And it all goes back to not recognizing that this is a global violent network that possesses huge capabilities. And that if we don't degrade that capability, we're just going to be stuck with a new problem down the road. Yeah, and especially if we continue these immigration magnets, that gives them, and I know it's not their only source of revenue, but it certainly gives them a lot of revenue. So they're going to continue to invest more in all their infrastructure, weapons, tactics, uh, tunnel digging tunnels, drones, you name it. Um, 
And that's why we need to cut that off. Uh, f- final thing, just on that point, I, I, I you just jogged my memory. I, I felt a, a tinge of bitterness when, um, and it's funny, I mean, I, I bet this is new to a lot of people in our audience. A lot of people don't even know this, but it ticked me off at the time. Um, Jaime Zapata was, as you well know, an HSI um, ICE agent for for us uh, doing work in Mexico and and on February 15, 2011, during the Obama administration, they were given him and um, his partner, and I'm for, drawing a blank on his name. He was just on Tucker Carlson. Um, good guy. And, and they, they, they were given this dubious mission to travel on this dangerous road controlled by the Zetas. And basically, they were pulled, you know, they were trapped by the Zetas in the highway and they forced them off and machine gunned them. And, um, one was injured, but, but Zapata was killed. I was really bothered at that point. I really thought we were going to see, you know, bombs going off where we'd actually go down there and, you know, do JSOC type of stuff. And like you said, we were, we just made arrests. And that really bothered me. I, I don't know if you, if you would like to comment on that, but that's something that has really bothered me recently, thinking back on it. Yeah, I remember that incident very well. My team and I worked that. We came in and worked all weekend long, and uh, it's just a sad state of affairs. He put the vehicle in park uh, after he was run off the road, tried to hold up his credentials, and by putting the vehicle in park, it unlocked the doors, and one of them was able to open up a door and stick a machine gun in there and open up, and unfortunately, he lost his life. Um I will tell you that, uh, yeah, you're right. You do hear some bitterness, uh, not only because we've allowed this for so long, but also because of just the loss of life. I mean, you're talking about men, women, and children down there in Mexico. Just horrible things have been happening. And the only thing we did as a result of the murder of, of this agent was, you know, uh, Operation Bombardier, which thanks to DEA, at least, you know, um, DEA did a you know nationwide roundup of cartel operatives in the United States. And you know, I can remember when that happened, I called up to SOD and I said, guys, fantastic. We, we played a huge role in that in Texas. And, um, but I asked him, I said, you know, why does it take the murder of an agent in Mexico before we do this? Why aren't we doing this back to back? And I think that's where we need to get domestically, but also especially in Mexico. Because remember, while we're talking about the effects on America, we're forgetting the impact that the cartels are having in Europe, in Australia, in Russia, in Canada. They have evolved and they are, we are not their only customer anymore. You know, they're making $200,000 a kilo, $200,000 a kilo of cocaine in Australia, $100,000 in Russia. And this is why you see cartel Jalisco new generation specifically, uh, specifically that cartel, because one of the things they did that was, you know, a new model the reason they have become so large so fast is they went overseas and realized that utilizing controlled substances like that, they can make a lot more money very quickly. So it's not a matter of if we're going to end up going after the cartels, it's a matter of when. And what I'm trying to say to your listeners and hopefully to someone in the administration that may be listening is that we've got to go now, not later, because lives count on this. Wow. Well, you know, um, as a... Uh... As your words are ringing very strongly here and very ominously, it's uh, early Friday afternoon here, and there is uh, some breaking news, and we're gonna we're gonna try to look into this. That the president is gonna make an announcement later this afternoon, and it looks like they reached some sort of agreement 
um, political agreement in Washington. We'll see what it is. Um, you know, if that is the truth, then it is very unlikely that it is an agreement that um, contains any solution to anything we're talking about. And I, I think that is really our job here. There's nothing I can do about this broken political system. Um, we have major problems. We don't have a political party, not in full, that realizes the severity of this problem, cares about it, or is willing to focus on it despite other political considerations. And all we can do is just from a policy standpoint, keep telling the truth and keep uh, arguing for these things. And I, I think, you know, as, as you're briefing us here, I, I really think, you know, what, what's going to happen is clearly we're going to lose this leverage. We're going to open back the government. He's not going to get wall funding or very little of it. But again, we need to go down the route of what are things as commander in chief he can do under existing authorization. We talk about obviously ending the asylum nonsense, which I believe, you know, we need to stand up to the courts, ending DACA, some of the DOD funding that could be used for infrastructure and deployment of the military. But I think what you're telling me is is, is obvious that I mean, straight up DOD authorization, everything we do in 140 countries. Could we be willing to do in our own border and in a country that is just responsible for tens of thousands of deaths by Americans because of drugs? Um, four people were just killed by a 19-year-old illegal smuggled in fairly recently in Nevada, Carson City area. Thousands of Americans die because of illegal immigrants. Um, and then over 33,000 a year now going up every year deaths in Mexico because we failed to take it seriously. And I think this is the avenue we need to take um, where, where, I mean, look, t tell me, am, am I incorrect? I mean, in order to designate them as a terror group, you don't need Congress for that, right? Well, you know, I, you don't. I mean, the State Department determines what organizations are determined to be a terrorist organization. So we need to get them on board. And Look, I, I get it. You know, here it is Friday morning. You got a guy on from Texas that, you know, your average viewer is probably going, my gosh, such doom and gloom. But at least you're finally hearing it. I mean, this isn't new for us down along the southwest border. This has been happening for a very long time. And it's time the folks have to hear it. And it's time the national media start picking up on the violence that's occurring and the spillover into the country. And, I, you know, I hate to hit the folks with so much so fast, but unfortunately, they are not being told. And, you know, that's that's the goal of this. Absolutely. That is the goal. Listen to this show over and over again and take notes. Call your members of Congress. Use use quotes from this show because uh, I could tell you if, uh, if Jason uh, is willing to say it on the record, you could take it to the bank. There's no one better than him in this business. Um, Jason, thanks for joining us as always. We will have a round three at some point. <laughs> Sounds good. Great to be with you today. And thanks for the opportunity to talk to the folks. Have a good day. Have a great weekend. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Jason Jones. And uh, folks, I, I just don't know what to say. Um, you know, when it comes to the politics, it is so broken. And there are so few people on our side willing to reform this party, start a new party, focus on what's right. I don't know what you do anymore other than to focus more just on the policies, on the nitty gritty and... You know, learn more and educate ourselves. Now, I know you'll say, well, that's going to make you even madder um, based on what's happening. But, uh, you know, any minute now, and by the time you hear this, it'll be after the fact, the president's going to give a speech. 
I'm sure when you hear from me Monday, um, it's going to be tough. And, you know, how sad that so many Republicans were forced to break their legislative virginity on never supporting amnesty just for this. So he could cave. And this is exactly what I warned about. I take no pride in warning at the beginning of the week where this was headed. But we all knew where it was headed. It's ridiculous. This has got to change. We got to demand that Trump only surround himself with people that support his campaign agenda, not his son-in-law. This is a very big problem. Um, I don't know. We'll see what happens. On, on the bright side, I'll tell you that, you know, I wasn't so into partial border funding anyway, as important as a border wall is in, in, in a certain respect, as, as Jason explained, really slowing down the criminal elements. But the magnets are the cause of it. So, you know, I think the next battle is executive stuff. I mean, this new asylum policy will be challenged in the courts in three seconds. We know that. We got to keep advocating. You stand up. Nothing good is going to come out of Congress that we know. He's never going to have the guts. Even if this is only a three, four week CR, come three, four weeks, he'll cave again. I mean, you might say, well, we have another opportunity to fight. At the very least, by only doing a short term CR, it keeps the border in the news. And that's the best we can do is to shed light on it until we create a critical mass of outrage over it. And again, we need to really argue along this this um, DOD line of thinking. Um, this is something that must be done. We need to treat it like the military threat that it is by a factor of 10,000 if we treat stuff halfway around the world that way. Um, let me know if you want Jason to answer any more questions, any any questions you have that um, you want him to answer, even if we don't have him back uh, next week. But certainly I could ask him that and discuss it on the show if he's uh, willing to put stuff on the record. Um, really grateful for him giving so much time. What a great, great guy to have on. Um, and we're looking forward to having some more great guests next, next week. God bless y'all. Have a great weekend. And let me tell you, be... Girded for battle come Monday.